Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you all today as I'm excited for us to get back into the book of Joel. Let me open us with a word of prayer, and then we will jump right into Joel chapter 2. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity we have as brothers and sisters in Christ to gather together in your name. Lord, I pray for our study of the word now, that you'll give us ears to hear, that you'll help me understand and explain things in a clear manner. And I pray that all of us will know more about your word because we've been both in the main service and in Sunday school. And we pray that you'll give us uh, all that we need from your word to live lives that bring you glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am excited to, in essence, I think we're in the heart, to be in what I think is the heart of the book of Joel. Just a short book, but really in Joel chapter 1 verse 15, it sort of gets to the center of the theme, the thematic core of the book. Joel 1.15 says, Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and it will come as destruction from the Almighty. And in the context of Joel, the prophet was writing, as we've said many times, to the southern kingdom of Judah, and they desperately needed to repent. The day of the Lord was coming, and it was going to be a day of judgment. And so the theme constantly is they need to repent because disaster is coming. In fact, all of chapter 1 is explaining disaster has already come. Through the waves of actual locusts, the economy, which was agricultural, had been completely destroyed. The people were suffering. There couldn't even be worship in the temple because the materials needed for the daily sacrifices were all gone. The locusts had taken it all away. There was a sense in which in the history of the nation of Israel, they looked forward to what they knew to be the day of the Lord, looking forward where God would judge their enemies. What they didn't realize is by their rejection of God in their daily lives, they had made themselves enemies of God. They thought the day of the Lord would be their vindication. Joel's warning them, look, the locusts have come, have destroyed everything, there's something worse coming unless you cry out to God. And so as I introduced chapter 2 last week, it's ultimately about repentance. It's ultimately about them turning from their sin and turning back to the Lord. That's their hope. That's what the locust plague was about. It wasn't a random disaster. It was discipline from the hand of God to try and get them to turn to God. And chapter 2 continues this theme of warning. God's discipline is only going to get worse because God's discipline is in danger of becoming God's judgment. God's discipline is to turn His children from the error of their ways back to Him. God's judgment is on those who prove themselves by their continued unbelief that they were never His children in the first place. And as Jesus made it clear in the New Testament, being a physical descendant of Abraham in and of itself is not the hope. So in all of this, there's this constant theme of warning, this constant call to turn away. Everything is about repentance. And what's interesting is what was the call of Joel is still the call to this day. In fact, Jesus 
began his public ministry with that call, Matthew 4.17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The more I study Joel, the more I think that really is the summary of the message of Joel. Repent. Now, as I began to introduce chapter 2 last week, I explained to you my own struggles with understanding fully what is going on in the text. I understand the words, I understand the picture, and I know the ultimate point. The ultimate point we'll see in Joel chapter 2 verse 12. Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, and with fasting, weeping, and mourning, the first part of verse 13, and rend your heart and not your garments, now return to the Lord your God. That is repentance. That's all that is. So I know what it's leading to. Verses 2 to 11 are leading to that call to repentance. The issue is what do verses 2 to 11 of chapter 2 mean? And as I mentioned last week, there's differing viewpoints, and I'm going to, as we go through it, I'm going to cover a little bit more of that. And I think after studying it, I told you my own views were going back and forth, I think I've landed where I'm going to be, at least until next week. So, I'll tell you with all my heart what I believe this week, and then I'll study again, and, and I may correct myself next week. But, as I outlined all this of these verses, I said it's evidence in the case for repentance. That's what Joel's doing. He's building a case, explaining to them why they have to turn to the Lord, why they have to cry out from the heart. And the first point, which is all we covered last week, is that the day of the Lord is approaching. The day of the Lord is approaching. And that was in verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. And as I covered in more detail last week, it's really the picture of a cry of battle, of letting people know it's upon us. Be ready. But as I also mentioned, it's interesting because whereas normally a battle cry would be from the outer boundaries of the territory where you look in the horizon and you see the army coming, this cry was supposed to go out from where the temple stood. My holy mountain is God's place that still exists in Jerusalem where the temple was. The temple doesn't exist, but the land is still there. And the alarm was supposed to go there, and there's a sense as I think about it, where you could almost imagine the people are going about their business and things are upon them faster than they realized. But what happens when you hear a sound? You turn. Where this alarm is blowing from is going to cause them to turn to God. I read last week, and I'm adding a little bit to it, from Second Chronicles chapter 5, where Solomon dedicated the temple. And all that was going on there. And then the my holy mountain is where that was all occurring. These were spiritual things. The, the temple was where God dwelled. On that account in Second Chronicles, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And I find it interesting when you read a little bit further, how Solomon prayed about the temple that he was building. In 2 Chronicles chapter 6, I'm going to start reading at verse 18. But will God indeed dwell with mankind on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. It's just the acknowledgement that God didn't literally live there. He's bigger than that. Verse 19, Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to listen to the cry and 
to the prayer which your servant prays before you, verse 20, that your eye may be open toward this house day and night, toward the place of which you have said you would put your name there to listen to the prayer which your servant shall pray toward this place, verse 21. Listen to the supplications of your servant and of your people Israel when they pray toward this place. Hear from your dwelling place from heaven. Hear and forgive. Jerusalem, my holy mountain, was central. And so when Joel references the alarm going out from there, it it all centers that everything for the Israelites should turn their hearts back to God. Symbolically pictured by my holy mountain. And there's a sense in which the alarm and the battle cry that it's coming from my holy mountain from Zion and Jerusalem is not just a warning about coming judgment. It is that, but it's also a call to remind them to turn towards that place where God dwells. So again, we're going to dig deeper into the events of chapter 2. But the writer is making it clear over and over, this is all part of a bigger picture. The day of the Lord's coming. It's an awful day. It's a future day of judgment. When's it coming? Soon. How soon? Every day is closer. But once you get past that initial warning, that's where we get into the heart of the interpretive difficulty. So I'm going to go ahead and introduce the second point in the evidence in the case for repentance. The first point is that the day of the Lord is approaching. The second point is this. The army of the Lord is coming. The army of the Lord is coming. Now, there's an aspect of this where there's two concepts. The day of the Lord is approaching. The army of the Lord is coming. They're similar, but they're not identical as of yet. And as I indicated last week, I was really struggling, but I think I finally settled on how I'm going to walk through these verses in a way that I think, number one, it's what I believe the verses are talking about, but also does justice to the text. And as I mentioned to you last week, the commentators on this generally take one of two approaches. The things described beginning in verse 2, this army that we'll see very clearly over the next couple of weeks, Some people take the position that really this is just chapter 1 all over again. Chapter 1 described all the locusts. Clearly, the language of chapter 2 corresponds in some respects to what they would have seen with the locust plagues. We'll see that over time. You have to trust me on it for now. And so some people say, really, chapter 2 is just a restatement of chapter 1 with the same warning. Repent, the day of the Lord is near. But others see that what the writer is doing is that he's taking the just-experienced locust plague and he's using that to describe in figurative language a coming actual army that's going to attack the nation. And that coming army that's going to attack the nation will be an image of the future day of the Lord, the final judgment, the final battle of everything. And I think there's some aspects of this that are very strong points in both favors, but I'm going to approach it in the way I think the text is written. 
and it's this. I, I think there's sort of, uh, it's not necessarily an either or, but there's some elements of both. I do believe that chapter 2 is talking about an army of human beings that's going to come and attack the nation. I do believe that Joel is using the present experience of everything that occurs with the locust to describe that army to let them know what you just saw is going to come again but in a far worse way. And I believe both of those are a foreshadowing of the ultimate day of the Lord that's still coming in the future. Again, as I walk through it, don't lose sight of what the ultimate point is. Everybody agrees the ultimate point is repent. I'll say that over and over. The ultimate point is repent. But the reason for the repentance and the reason, the evidence for the repentance, I think, is best seen by the fact that Joel is talking about a real army that's going to come. So if I, and I'm very concerned about not being clear on this, but we're going to be seeing, and we're going to think through these verses, number one, based on what just occurred in chapter one, the locust plagues. Because that imagery is very important. It's what he uses for description. But also, there's a coming physical battle on the earth that has already occurred. Most people think it was the Assyrian army. And then there's a future judgment that's still coming that is the ultimate day of the Lord. So I'm going to try and weave all these things together without losing sight of everything. But let's continue on in Joel chapter 2. Let's look at verse 2. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. Again, the imagery here is foreboding. If this was a movie, there would be a very ominous soundtrack right now. What's coming is a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Now, this is imagery of the ultimate day of the Lord, but the picture is coming now. This isn't the sunshine and birds chirping. This is things looking very, very scary. And in the minds of the original Jewish audience, who would have been steeped to a certain extent, even though they were obviously rejecting the Lord, hence His discipline, it would have probably created in their minds some very real images. Images that would have emphasized for Joel to them the urgency and the seriousness of what was coming. One of the central events in the history of the nation of Israel was the exodus out of Egypt. To this day, Jewish people, even that don't worship God, celebrate the Passover. Got an unbelieving friend that he probably couldn't tell me in the Bible where that even is, but he's Jewish, culturally Jewish. He knows what the Passover is. It's the celebration, God's deliverance of his people from Egypt. And as we know, if you've been around church very long, before the people left, 
it ultimately took a total of ten plagues, of which the last plague, so to speak, was what led to the Passover. But it's interesting, and it's just the nature of how God works. One of the plagues on Egypt was a locust plague. In Exodus chapter 10, verses 3 to 5, we see this. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your territory. They shall cover the surface of the land so that no one will be able to see the land. They will also eat the rest of what has escaped, which is left to you from the hail, and they will eat every tree which sprouts for you out of the field. So in a sense, God has already used locusts for his purposes in Egypt, and he's doing the same thing now with the Israelites. That's what he did in Joel. Because they had not humbled themselves. What's interesting is the very next plague in Exodus 10 after the locusts. Exodus chapter 10 verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even a darkness which may be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. Again, this is a central element of Jewish identity is the events of the Exodus. And so Joel, after just reminding them, in essence, they had not even realized the implications of what the locusts had just done to them. He says the next thing that's coming is darkness. It would have been a reminder to them of what God had already done to his enemy Pharaoh and a warning to them, look what path you're on. It would have no doubt heightened for them the sense of concern and dread. In fact, they would have already experienced something of the darkness just by the presence of the locusts. When the locusts were swarming over, over and over, would have been so great that it would have been a cloud and it's almost replacing one cloud with another cloud. So again, this is just heightening the sense of alarm, the sense of urgency. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. And this imagery is just of the sun coming up over a hill and suddenly the light's everywhere. Now it's an interesting contrast because on the one hand there's darkness and gloom and he's not saying there's going to be light but he's borrowing that illustration to create a picture in the mind you can almost imagine it. When it's dark and the sun starts to come up there's light everywhere. He's saying that's the scope of the army that the alarm is being sounded for. You look out and there's a great and mighty people and they're spread out everywhere. Now again, the contrast or the challenge is, and this really hinges everything, is, is that great and mighty people 
just anthropomorphic language for locust. I mean, Joel has already done that. Joel 1.6, he says, For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. And so some say, well, see, he's really talking the same thing. But I don't believe that's accurate. Yes, there are parallels in the language, and I think those parallels are intentional, but it doesn't mean they're describing the same event. So, for example, in verse 2, Joel goes on, There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it to the years of many generations. And this is similar to the question asked in chapter 1, verse 2, Has anything like this happened in your days? So both events are unprecedented, but that doesn't mean they're the same event. Again, I believe chapter 2 is talking about a real army... And one of the most significant things for me, and there are other reasons, I won't get to all of them, but if you look at Joel chapter 2 verse 20, looking ahead, God, in explaining what He will do if the people have repented, says this, But I will remove the northern army far from you, I'll drive it into a parched and desolate land, and its vanguard into the eastern sea, its rear guard into the western sea, and on it goes. In the history of Israel, they actually were attacked from an army from the north. The Assyrian kingdom was to the north and ultimately did many of the things we'll read about here. And even if it wasn't the kingdom of Assyria, which is probably, I think, highly likely, at the very least, if you look at their history, armies were coming down from the north to attack. So I think what Joel is saying is that Joel is saying, look, the locusts have just come and sound the alarm because something else is coming if you don't repent. And in fact, since what God said he would do in Joel 2.20 of removing the army apparently didn't occur because an army did come, possible we can conclude that they didn't heed Joel's warning. They didn't heed his message. But for now, just understand, I think that Joel is describing a very real army that's going to come. And it's a precursor of a final battle and a final day. And I'll read some verses, not this week, but in a future weeks from the book of Revelation that I think describes the ultimate day of the Lord battle. But he's using imagery that borrows from what they just experienced to heighten the reality of what's coming their way. And be very clear, what's coming their way is from the Lord. Again, I'm jumping around because it just helps to understand it, but if you look ahead to chapter 2, verse 11, first part it says, The Lord utters His voice before His army. So what Joel is describing is not just a geopolitical future event, it's God himself directing the affairs of human history. And he's going to use the figurative language of locusts to describe this army because it would be fresh in the people's mind. And they would remember their feelings of inadequacy and helplessness as wave after wave of locusts plowed through the land and destroyed everything. And he wants them to have that sense of alarm 
and dread of the army of the Lord that's going to march upon them and come rumbling their way if they don't repent. In fact, in verse 1, that phrase, let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. People are supposed to be scared. This is supposed to get their attention because what's coming is terrifying and will be horrific. Joel begins to describe what will occur and the similarities of what has just occurred with the locusts. And he's telling them what this army will do. Verse 3. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. Again, Joel uses poetic language, and he clearly is building off of what just occurred. Chapter 1 makes it clear. Wave after wave of locusts came through and decimated everything. The land flowing with milk and honey was barren and destitute. Presumably, Joel is warning them that, look, at some point things will come back. But if you don't repent, it's going to happen again. In the same way that the locusts swept through and destroyed everything, this future army will be sweeping forward, destroying everything in its path. Before them will lie destruction. Behind them will lie devastation. Just like a real fire would do, just like the locusts had done. He said the land is like the Garden of Eden before them. In other words, it's just a picture of beauty. Of picturing what the nation of Israel once was. God gave them a good land, a fertile land, a fruitful land. But like the locusts did in the present, this army will do in the future in that whatever prosperity may have been regained will be wiped out one more time. You could almost hear Joel pleading with the people saying, look at your life now. I just reminded you that not only is everything destroyed, but it was God who was doing it. And if you don't repent, can you imagine how much worse it'll be when it's not insects, but it's the enemies of God with weapons coming to destroy? He's just pleading with them wake up. Do you understand what is occurring? God's hand is against you. Again, the picture is bleak. Darkness and gloom. And then as you look on the horizon, a dawning realization that there's an evil army that means to destroy you and your families and your land. No wonder he says, sound the alarm. No wonder he, he's in essence saying, wake up. And it's only going to get worse. And his ultimate call is repent. That's where he's going. Now I gave some initial warnings when we started going through Joel 
to be careful that we separate our political views and our love from America from the message of Joel. But as I indicated last week, and I will reiterate today, and I'll probably say something like this every single time we teach this book, it's not hard to find parallels in the world around us. In fact, if you are like me and you start looking at the last 20 years, it's almost as that the pace of catastrophe seems to be increasing. Either that or in my old age, I'm misperceiving. But the catastrophic events are piling on top of each other faster and faster and faster. And while the worldly explanation is always something either sociological or it's the climate or something else, I think we would be wise as the children of God to see God's hand in all that's occurring around the world as lawlessness is building. Except now, we don't go physically to Jerusalem and climb up on the holy hill by the dome of the rock and blow a horn. We are God's messengers to a society and a world that is increasingly in desperate need of repentance. Let me encourage you. Don't miss the warnings for us. I'm saying this assuming everybody sitting in front of me is a believer. If you're not a believer then the judgment's coming for you. Repent today. But if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then figuratively, you need to be sounding the alarm. But understand, sound the right alarm. The issue is not sound the alarm that our government is corrupt and bad. It is. It will be. Sound the alarm that people are in danger of missing Jesus Christ. Again, we exist as citizens and so we have civic responsibilities, but don't miss the ultimate responsibility is to call lost sinners to repentance because the day of the Lord is coming. And in some respects, all of the natural disasters and calamities and diseases and storms are in a sense God's hand already stretched out on a planet and a people that more and more reject Him. So for us, this is a good historical study. For us, it's going to point us towards some future prophetic things that haven't occurred yet. But if all we get out of our study of the book of Joel is an interesting knowledge about something that happened a long time ago with a prophet of God and something that might happen in the future and we miss the call on our own hearts today, the same sense of urgency, the same sense of dread and doom, not for our salvation, but for the souls of those who are still in gloom and darkness. So let me encourage you. Start praying now for those that the Lord might bring across your path that you can sound the alarm to that you can share with. 
doesn't have to be something extraordinary. You don't have to go around the world, but you can, but you don't have to. There's enough lost people in danger of the judgment of God that we interact with every day. So I'm going to bring today's portion of teaching to a close. Then I'm going to ask you to pray for me. I'm going to make a couple of announcements. So, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you will help us as we go through the book of Joel. Lord, help us take away the right lessons from the book. Pray that you'll continue to give me clarity as I study. And and even now, I realize people that I respect have differing views. I just pray that you'd lead me to the truth so that I can share the truth with my brothers and sisters in this room. And Lord, I pray that we would be those who sound the warning. Lord, doom is on our horizon. We see evidence of the rebelliousness of the people against you and we know your judgment is coming. Help us to be faithful. Help us to have a sense of urgency to share the truth with those who are lost and dying. We ask all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.